Perfect. So, uh, I just want to remind you as offering plates are going around, uh, we really do want to pray for you. Uh, and I, I want you to think about it as a, as a gift, something that the church can, uh, can do for one another. Uh, we're called to bear one another's burdens. And so the gray cards have that on the back. Make, make sure you're taking advantage of that. Uh, we want to be able to, to know what's going on uh, with, with your life. I'm going to begin reading uh, in in the middle of verse 19 of Acts chapter 9. Uh, We're in a series in the book of Acts, and what that generally means is we start at the beginning of a book, and we just sort of walk our way through it. Uh, And we have uh, been at it now for the the duration of this fall. This will be the last sermon in Acts. Uh, We'll take a couple weeks off for Advent, and then when we come back after Christmas, uh, we'll dive back in. I'm going to read the rest of Acts chapter 9. Uh, We have to start in the middle of a verse because whoever started the versification process is that a, I don't even know if that's a word. But you know that this wasn't originally written. These were letters. Uh, they didn't come chapter and verse. Um, at least maybe you do. Maybe you write in your journal. Or maybe you write a letter handwritten and put chapters and verse in there. Uh, but they didn't at the time. So this came later. And I'm not really sure why. But um, there's really a break in the middle of verse 19. So I'm going to start at 19. We're going to read all the way through the rest of Acts chapter 9. And we're going to begin to see uh, some more, more escapades, really, of a, two of the most important figures in the life of the early church. Uh, Saul, post-conversion, post-miraculous conversion. And then Peter, uh, exercising miraculous gifts, much in the spirit of, of Jesus. So I'd invite you to read with me. If you've got a Bible, that's great. Uh, if you don't have one, you can take one of the black ones that's right in front of you. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, I want to say again, before we come to the Word of God, if... If your only instruction in spiritual things, if your only understanding of who Jesus is comes because an hour a week uh, you come and someone with a microphone, you know, teaches you, then I, and I really want to caution you against that. Um, our desire is that you would check everything that happens against the Word of God. Our, our joy, our greatest hope would be that you come here and we teach you how to, how to feed, that we, we give you a hunger to eat so that throughout the week you are drawn back again and again uh, to the contents of God's Word. That would be the hope. That would be the goal. That would be the aim. And so, again, if you, if you have a Bible, awesome. Read with me. Um, find where it's at. If not, uh, we'd love for you to take one um, with you. Ninth chapter of the book of Acts. to the middle of the 19th verse. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who had made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. 
and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who, were, who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. God, would you help us? You've already been so gracious and so kind. You've given us your very word. And we want to be transformed by it now. We want to come underneath it. We want to not just in theory, not just because we've read it in your word, we want to experience it as living and active. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to take these truths, this word, and to cut us, to separate joint marrow. We know that we're laid bare before you anyway. You see, you see the very depth of our souls and our hearts. So God, we ask that you would give us a vision of yourself. Give us a vision of Jesus Christ, still active, still ministering by his spirit through the apostles. Specifically through Paul and Peter. I pray that you'd protect, protect us as well. Keep my, my lips from falsehood. I pray that you'd help us to, to rest on truth. God, we're needy. We beg you, Holy Spirit, to come. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. These are, uh, I know I use this phrase often, these are felt board uh, heroes, right? These are the all-stars of the faith. You could be as anti-Christianity as you possibly wanted. You could be as religiously illiterate as you could be. And yet you could probably name a couple of the key principles of the early church. Who wrote much of the New Testament? Who were the disciples? And anyone who has any experience at all with who Jesus was could probably spit out the names of Paul and Peter. This is an interesting little section at the end of Acts chapter 9 where their ministries are beginning to sort of collide and sort of come into contact with one another. Up to this point, the apostles have taken center stage as far as the leadership and ministry of the expanse of the gospel has gone. It's been the apostles. And even more than that, it's been Peter and John mostly with Peter like he's wont to do, being kind of the loud mouth sort of center stage one of the apostles. And then last week we saw the beginning of of Acts chapter 9, Brian walked us through this amazing conversion. Saul, who could not have been a more vehement enemy of the gospel, gets transformed. His entire life, his, his entire script flipped. 
right? That's exactly what happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. And so what's happening here is Luke is beginning to lead us in a, different, in a couple of different places. All throughout the book of Acts, there's a few things going on. One is teaching, obviously. All of Scripture is profitable for instruction, right? So there's teaching that's going on. And we want to ask ourselves the question, what are we learning as we read this section of Acts chapter 9? But we're also seeing that Luke is leading us somewhere. He's a very careful historian. He's leading us to introduce characters at particular times, to introduce themes, and move us in a kind of direction. So he's always doing both of these things. He's teaching us and he's leading us. He's teaching us and he's leading us. And what's happening here is we begin to see this intersection between Paul and Peter. Saul is converted, he's introduced, and in the beginning of our passage today that we're going to walk through, we're, we're emphasizing the life of Paul post-conversion. And then we have this sort of aside from the end of Acts chapter 9 all the way up through chapter 12. So the end of 9, all of 10, all of 11, all of 12, we get the emphasis back on Peter, and then he basically just disappears from the book. Just sort of poof, he's just kind of gone. And the the emphasis will shift completely to Paul, starting with his missionary journeys in Acts chapter 13 at the beginning. That's what we're seeing. Luke is leading us to these two characters. I want you to see very, very clearly as well, this is one of the last places or one of the most poignant places, I think, where we begin to see this. You remember what we said at the beginning? Maybe you weren't here. Maybe you weren't here at the beginning when we started the series in Acts. We said that the book of Acts is not what happens when Jesus abandons ship, right? Acts is not like, oh, here's a bunch of these people just like working to hold it together. Jesus is gone. We said that if the Gospels are the ministry of Jesus in the flesh, that Acts is the ministry of Jesus by His Spirit through the apostles. And we're beginning to see some of the ways in which Jesus was right when He said His disciples. Remember when He told them that He was going to be murdered and had to leave? And what did His friends say? The kind of things that friends would say, like, nuh-uh, right? They said, no way, Jesus. Like, you're not going to leave. What are we going to do? Who are we going to follow? We've given, our th- we've given three years of our life to following you around. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's better that I go. He says, it's better that I go because his ministry is going to be expanded and it's going to be different. It's going to be through the hands and mouths of the people in which His Holy Spirit will dwell. That is the plan. Acts is not what happens when Jesus is dead and leaves the scene. He's very much alive. He's very much alive. And the gospel is overcoming, and I was trying to figure out, there's this interesting interplay. This isn't a unique point in the book, right? We're just about to see the explosion of the Gentile mission in Acts chapter 10. We've introduced Saul, who's Paul now, and is going to become the main figure of the book. Peter's still kind of hanging around. There's miraculous stuff going on. And it's hard to figure out how do we hang sort of an idea of what's happening here. And I think we just go back to the major theme of Acts. And that's this, that Jesus is overcoming all things. He's overcoming all things. There's three major areas that I think that we can pull from this um, that help us to get an idea of these are the things that are being overcome. I started them all with E, and I know that if you're a person who like, listens to a lot of these things that we call sermons, and you're like, are you serious? Three things, and they all start with E. Um, now, now is a certified, fully functioning eye roll opportunity. It really is. It's stamped. It's rubber stamped if you want to. But here's, I think, uh, here's the thing. This is what Jesus is overcoming. In his ongoing ministry, he's overcoming enmity. 
enmity. Enemies. He's making enemies friends. That's one of the things that the gospel, gospel does. And when I say enemies, I mean distinct, hardened, perverse, passionate enemies. That's what we're seeing in the life of Paul. And what happens here in this narrative is the fallout of what happens when an enemy becomes a friend. So Jesus has overcome enemies. The second thing that we're going to see is this sort of theme that begins to build. It's going to explode in chapter 10, but this theme that begins to build that this, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus overcomes ethnic obstacles, okay? So it overcomes ethnicity. One, he makes enemies friends. In the message of Jesus, the gospel also overcomes ethnicity, which is a massive deal. This speaks loudly in a world that is having massive problems trying to find peace across ethnic lines. And yet we find what Acts is about in large part is about the melting away, the overcoming of obstacles as it has to do with ethnicity. And then the last one, this is really stretching, right? This is a word that I I try to figure out. How do I describe what it means that the gospel is overcoming sickness? And not just sickness, but paralyzation. You know the gospel, that's what's happening. Peter goes out, and in Jesus' name, he's healing diseases. This guy can walk again. How do we, what do we call it when diseases are being healed and more healed? That was like a second grade slip of the tongue. So what do you do with that? And then in the very next verses, overcoming death itself. What do we make of this gospel? These are not minor promises. This is not like, come to Jesus and your life will get 10% better. You'll have more moral clarity than ever. These promises are massive and deep. They run to the very core of the, of the absolute devastating problems of the fall. And so the word that I put on it, I hitched on it just to get an E, is entropy. Entropy. I roll, engaged, go for it, it's fine. Entropy, right, is this word that just means this like inherent, non-stop, sort of built into the world idea of everything decaying. And that's what happens when sin comes into the world, right? Isn't that what happens? The story of Adam and Eve, as old as sin is, when sin comes into the world, everything that it touches is disease and decay leading to death. That is what God said. In the day that you sin, you will die. In other words, they sinned, and because of sin, there is entropy in the world. Things are not being made new. They are decaying. And what do we make of a Jesus who came into the world lived a perfect life and gave his own body and his own blood so that he could undo the very fabric of our world, the disease and death and destruction that is ravaging the globe. Jesus' promises, oh yeah, all that stuff, disease and paralyzation and lameness and deafness and blindness, death itself, I'm undoing all that. I'm undoing all that. I'm just making it new. I'm just getting rid of all that. The promise of the gospel is huge. And so these are the areas we're going to look at. We're going to spend a bulk of the time probably on the first one of making enemies a friend because the idea, the conversion of Saul and his ministry later as the Apostle Paul is huge. It's a big chunk of this text. But we want to comment briefly as well on the fact that the gospel, Jesus' life, his message overcomes ethnicity and it, it undoes the very fabric of decay and destruction, the entropy caused by the fall. So the first thing we see is this absolute, and I would say that Saul is one of the first sort of celebrity conversions in the church. Do you know what I mean by that? 
Have you guys ever heard a conversion story that was so astounding and so amazing that it was like prepackaged, and you just thought like, this is not, I went to a church service one time, and a, and a guy actually came, he, his whole life, his ministry was going around and just simply telling the conversion story of his life. He grew up, you know, he grew up in, a, in a place where Islam was a dominant religion. He found a Bible through all these random circumstances that seemed like at every turn you just were left breathless like, how did that happen? And then this, what? You hear his story and he, he began to read his Bible in secret in a room. Became convinced that Jesus was not just a prophet but was the Son of God and began to worship him privately. This takes like devotion time to like a whole new level, right? When your whole family and your city is opposed to the gospel. And this, this guy is converted, eventually facing persecution from his parents when they find out. He's kicked out. He has to flee his home, right? And his whole conversion is sort of this like, I, I call it a celebrity conversion because it's one of those stories that makes us pause and say, wow, this gospel is powerful and transformative. You maybe want to sit and listen. As an aside, I want you to know that every single time that God does heart work and makes a dead person alive, it's a pretty big deal, right? But for whatever reason, in our mind, we have these kind of categories, right? If you told me your story and I said, how were your sins completely forgiven and washed away and removed as far as the east is from the west? You'd probably tell me, what's this boring story? My parents brought me to church and I don't even remember, right? That's not what this story is about. Saul is an amazing reminder. His whole story is about how God can make, make enemies friends. And not just any kind of enemies. Saul, you remember, was an unbelievable, unbelievable enemy of the gospel. You saw it in the response. He goes out preaching, and what does it say in verse 21? All who heard him were amazed and said. And I believe that the all who heard him were probably not just the Christians either. Right? These are Jewish leaders these are secular people who are watching. You know, there's a lot of people who aren't involved in all the politics and the religious intrigue of Jewish synagogue leaders and the Hellenists and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's some just good old-fashioned, just, just like pagan people just kind of like hanging out with the Roman Empire. And they're probably looking in. And I don't know, they're like drinking coffee and talking about like, I don't know, I heard about this one guy. He goes around and murders people, just throwing them in jail. Can you believe, right? And all who heard... The story said, isn't this the guy who came from Jerusalem? And when he's in Jerusalem, I love the word, he was making havoc for the Christians. He was making havoc. One of my favorite making havoc games of all time was a Nintendo Entertainment System game for Godzilla. It was like, and it was like one of the first destructible environments. You could actually take your character and just go and like eat buildings and just, you just make havoc and I know I might be the only person that when I'm reading the Bible and I'm studying it, I'm thinking I read Make Havoc in Jerusalem, I think, just like Godzilla in that, in that Nintendo game. Just like that, right? Like he was making so much havoc that he had a reputation as a persecutor of the church. And not only that, but he left Jerusalem. He's like, I'm doing a bunch of damage here, but I hear that this Christian thing is going on way up there in Damascus, and I just will not stand for it. He goes to the authorities and says, like, can you give me a search warrant? And can you, can you send some soldiers with me? And we're going to go and we're going we're gonna to get them all. He was such an enemy that when he was converted, everyone said, like, say, what? That guy? Not that guy. And it doesn't happen just once. It happens later, probably a few years later. He goes to Jerusalem, and the believers there are still, like, hands off. Like, no way. And you can imagine, right? You can imagine if 
You had seen Stephen be stoned to death before your very eyes. Watch Saul approving of this murder. You'd think to yourself, like, this might just be a long con, right? I know that Saul's preaching now and everything's fine, but this is just a Trojan horse. He just wants to get on the inside. He's like going long con like Sawyer, right? And that is a very nerdy lost reference. So he's, they're thinking to themselves, like, this is, how big of an, uh, this is how big of an enemy he's been. There's no way that that man can be converted. And you know what the gospel says? Yes, he can. God is making enemies friends. That's what's happening. God is making enemies friends. And it is an astounding reality. It took me a little while because I know the story so well. And I just want you to know, every time you read the Bible or hear a teaching on the Bible in ever, here's what you need to do. You need to slap yourself and you need to say to yourself, like, you don't know this. Especially if you're a churchy kid like me, slap yourself. You don't know this. I want to relearn these things again. I read it and I'm like, oh yeah, that was when Saul was converted and then he went back to there and they didn't want him and then he had to be let down, whatever. I want to get back in the reality of this. And can you imagine how astounding this would be? What kind of stories we'd tell? I already told you that I went to a church service and listened to a guy whose whole life was to tell his conversion story and everyone around me just said like, uh-uh, no way. Can you imagine this would have been like? What would like the PR director for Christianity Today do with Saul's story? <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine the tour bus? There would be a massive tour bus with Paul like just lounging in there, right? Going, and going to churches all over. There would be book deals. Someone would write the story in depth. And I know maybe you're saying to yourself, like, oh, I'm above all that, commercialized Christianity, right? But you know if it was like $1.99 on Kindle, you'd totally buy that, right? You would. You would, you would download it, just like whisper sync that thing straight in. You'd be like, you read it. Seriously, this conversion is as much of a celebrity, crazy, making enemies, friends conversion as we have in the entire Bible. It's astounding. There's so many times I read stories like this and I just think like, oh, another story, big deal. This is amazing. You know you'd read about it. And as soon as the movie came out, Nicolas Cage as the Apostle Paul, right? You're there. You know you're there. You really are. I want to construct a timeline. If there's one person who is vital to know for the New Testament, it's probably Paul. Is that a fair thing, right? I don't think anyone came to church today and said like, whoa, hold it, pastor. Like, you're saying strange things. The New Testament, Paul's a pretty big deal. Right? He wrote a huge majority of the books. Not a majority, 13 out of 27. It's a little bit less. But he's a big part of the New Testament. So we ought to know him. And I want to construct a little bit of a timeline in your mind of what happens. You see, scholars look at this and they say, what's happening? There's all these directions that he's going and his conversion in Jerusalem. And so here's the timeline, as best as we can possibly say, of what's happening in this early stage of Paul's life. He's in Jerusalem. We know this is probably in maybe the first decade after the resurrection of Jesus Christ or so. Most people believe that he began his missionary journeys in the early 40s-ish or something like that, right? Around 40 AD. And he's on his way to Damascus, which is in the north, right? It's up from Jerusalem. He has to go way up, kind of around Samaria, sort of into the, into the boondocks, into the sticks. And on his way, he meets Jesus Christ and is converted. And then there's these moments where, uncharacteristically, Luke is sort of vague with the details, right? Did you see how verse 19 started in what I read? And then for some, some days, right, for some days he was with the, with the disciples at Damascus. 
And there's a lot of questions because we read it and we say like, so what happened? And here's the best that we can surmise. He's converted on the way to Damascus. People probably freak out, right? So he comes into Damascus and, and the guy who is, who is praying for him to receive the Holy Spirit, Ananias, probably is wise enough to say, okay, uh, we need to do something with you, right? You can't, just, you can't just show up at church next week, right? That's just not going to work. Probably not going to happen. And so over the course probably, and we'll show you why in a minute, of about three years, Paul just commits himself to learning the faith. He just learns. And in and out of this time, there's a wilderness out to the east of Damascus. So it's north of Jerusalem. Out to the east of Damascus, there's this wilderness called Arabia. And over the course of these three years, it seems like Paul is just sort of getting out of town. He just goes on a sabbatical, right? He's like, oh man, all this murderous threats. It's wearing me out. You know, like I'm really worn out. I just got to, he takes a sabbatical and for probably a couple of years, he's out in Arabia, maybe back and forth to Damascus until the tension gets ramped up so much in Damascus, right? You read it here. The tension gets wrapped up so much in Damascus from his preaching that there was a plot to watch the gates and kill him. There was a plot to watch the gates of Damascus and when he came in to kill him, So he has to have this escape thing where he leaves Damascus and then goes down to Jerusalem. So what we try to do is figure out how are these paths going with the rest of the story because Paul shares his story a little bit with us. And in the moments when Luke is a little bit fuzzy, like have you ever told a story before and you you have it in basic sort of general details and you bring someone else to bring in the specifics, you're kind of like, what actually happened there, right? Paul helps us out at different points of the New Testament with these details. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32 and 33. We see one of the instances where Paul recounts this, and I imagine he would remember it. Um, If you were ever lowered down from a window to escape murder, you might remember it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. What did Luke say? There are people at the gates waiting to seize him, right? So Paul says later in Corinthians, he was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Paul is giving corroborating evidence of this is the instance. This is what happened. And then go to Galatians chapter 1. This one will be up on the screen as well. Galatians chapter 1 we find some of the rest of this timeline. And as you're going there, I just want to comment for a moment. I've said a few different times, for us to understand Acts, we need to realize that this is a selective history. Luke is not writing an exhaustive detail of every single time they had bagels for breakfast, right? It's not every day. This is not a Truman Show account of the early church. That's not the idea. And we see that very clearly because between verses 23... 23, when many days had passed. There's another one of those Luke fuzzy things. For some days he was with the disciples. Many days had passed. Between verse 23, when many days passed, basically down through the rest of 31, this whole instance of Paul is really sort of three plus years. His conversion all the way through here. So in one chapter, not even one full chapter of Acts chapter 9, we're getting a more than three year period of Paul's life. I think this is important for us to remember. It helps me to remember when I think to myself, this is the craziest church I've ever seen in my life, right? There's stuff going on 
every single day. This is like as the world turns. Is that, is that a soap? I feel ashamed that I could pull that out just on the moment. I used to like Days of Our Lives better, to be honest. So I read this and I think, like, it's just drama every turn, but we've got to remember this is, a, this is a history that's happening, right? Galatians chapter 1, Paul gives us more of the background. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, this is verse 15, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. In other words, he's making the case. I didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. That's what we saw in Acts 9. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then verse 18, this gives some direction and some light on what Luke is saying when many days had passed. He says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and then glorified God because of me. That sounds about right. They glorified God because of me. God has made an enemy a friend. That's what's taken place. And he was such an enemy that it took three plus years for the disciples to say, I think this might be legit. I cannot believe what God has done. Let me give just a couple of points of application before we move on. I want to remind you of this, that God is completely free and sovereign and powerful. And when he has a chosen instrument in mind, he, can, he breaks the heart of Saul. You know that? He breaks the heart of Saul. He knocks him to the ground and blinds him and says, why are you kicking against the goats? He converts him. And all, this, all of that is to say that we need to be actively killing the inner cynic of our hearts. Am I the only person who finds it very, very simple and very easy to write people off? Do you have some people on the wrote them off list in your heart? Right? Like you might even move, you might even start to move to pray for them, but you, you get this feeling inside of you that's sort of like, yeah, but not really. Yeah, right. Is the story of Saul not a story that should tell us and scream to us and remind us over and over again there is no right off ability in the gospel? Every time you're tempted to despair or doubt or cynicism about someone who you think is there's just no way that God could do a work in their life, Saul just keeps screaming back at you. Nope. Jesus overcomes enemies. He really does. And we need to pray with the kind of faith that takes into account a passage like this. You don't get to discount this. You don't get to pray as though the world doesn't exist where a guy like Saul is converted. That's not fair. It doesn't happen. That's an offense. That's an offense to God. It is an offense to God to write someone off. It really is. He is a God who overcomes enmity. That's what he does. He's in the business of doing that. So I want to encourage you as you encounter this passage, don't just think to yourself, I know this story, whatever. I want you to say to yourself, who do I need to be praying more fervently for? Because God can save Saul. God can save Saul. 
This might even be like a cheap, like a little catchphrase you could put on like some crochet somewhere or something, right? Get the t-shirt made, bumper sticker. The next time you're tempted to despair, something's terrible going wrong, you think like, I just don't have hope for the future, I don't know what to do in this particular area, just remind yourself, God saved Saul. You know that? He saved Saul. A couple of things to think about from his life on how God makes enemies friends. I want you to note that when God makes enemies friends, he uses instruments. Now, Saul's is an indication of a time when he speaks very boldly and almost directly, like just this astounding, amazing, how did this happen? But there are people coming alongside. Ananias comes alongside and is used of God. And then my favorite character probably in all of Paul's story, Barnabas. It says in verse 27 of Acts 9, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Back in Acts chapter 4, Barnabas, son of Levi, said his name was son of encouragement. There is encouragement that's happening here, and I think it is astoundingly powerful. I'm not sure you could ever quantify it. Like if you went back later in life and said to Paul, hey, Paul, tell me what percentage of an impact did it make that Barnabas encouraged you? I doubt he could quantify it, but my guess is that it's probably more powerful than you'd think. When I was growing up, there was a, a really sweet old lady in our church, and uh, she was committed. She was committed to encouragement like a lady that I'd never, like anyone that I've never ever met in my whole life. She would scour the newspaper, watch the news, find anything she possibly could to connect with the kids and the people in the church to, to be an encouragement to them. She had all the little towns around. I grew up in this little town outside of the city where we went to church, and they, they would produce calendars with everyone's birthday on it. Like, this is like the quaintest small town in the world. Um, like, for real, when I got my breakfast cereal in the morning, I would open my counter, and there was a calendar for that month right there on the inside where the bowls were, and it told you that day that Millie Sue Johnson had her birthday today. Like, it really did. And so this lady gathered all these from around, and without fail, I would get handwritten notes of encouragement from this lady. She would write me things like, I just want you to know, Lance, I just love that you're a part of this church, and Jesus loves you too, and I'm so encouraged by you. And you really are something special. And we're praying for you. She'd sign her name. And for years, I thought, like, what do you do? You know, you're a kid, and you're, maybe even you're like 13, and you think, like, I just got the weirdest note from an old lady. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know what's going on. And then finally, you realize that every one of my friends and all these people in the church, all of them, were getting whipped up in this amazing tornado of encouragement from this lady. And I could not believe, if you asked me to look back over my church life and say, how much of an impact did it make that this lady wrote you these little handwritten notes? Like, how much of an impact did it make? I can't quantify it. I don't know. Except my guess is that one day I'll look back and I'm going to find that it was a bigger impact than I ever imagined. We need to be like this Barnabas guy who takes people aside and when they need encouragement... I see something's not going on here. And speak life. This is a gift. I would love it if of all the things that are ever said about our church, of all the things that are ever said, I would love it if someone could say this. You know what? I don't know what else happened, but here's the thing. I was always so encouraged there. Could we be a place that's, that no one ever serves without someone saying, I see you, I see that? I love what you're doing, and God loves you too, and he sees it. You know that life is really hard? You know that? Like, you're going to leave, life out there is terrible. This is not an inspirational message. I know it's not. 
Like, it's hard, right? You're going to encounter a day where you just think to yourself, like, again? Did the alarm clock just go off again? You know how powerful it is to receive? Like, I think we need to get back an old-fashioned, just sort of like, get some notes and write on the note card, hey, I was thinking about you today. I just want to let you know I'm grateful. I'm grateful for who you are. I'm grateful for your character. I know you've been having a hard time, but I just want to let you know, like, I would have snapped and you're holding it together. Go you. Or whatever you're going to say. We need to be encouraging like this lady was. And when I look back over my life, it's a boring testimony, right? But I find all these people who are encouraging. This guy named Charlie was the deacon head, right? He was the usher guy. He would greet everyone at church. Since I was five years old, you know what Charlie did? Charlie made me feel like a man. Charlie would come up, he'd slap me on the shoulder really hard, only like only old man strength can do, right? Put his hand out. Hello, Mr. Olam. So glad you're here today. How was your week? kill anything? Eat any bugs? Right? Like, just like this total straight talk thing. So glad you're here. When Charlie died, I got to stand in front of our church in North Dakota, and I I had no idea the impact that his encouragement. Real life, like someone breathing life into me. I, I wept in front of our church talking about this. And if someone said, like, well, what did he do for you? I don't know. He just, he just like treated me like a, like a worthwhile human. I mean, he was kind and joyful. This is not a small thing. We read Barnabas and he's a small little thing. It's a major thing. I think we should learn a lesson from this. And it's good not only for other people. If the next 12 months there are people in this room who feel bombarded with encouragement, I'm going to praise God for it. It's not just good for them. You know what's good for you? I love that as a nation we just celebrated Thanksgiving. It's like the one thing that Western individualized go us America does to stir humility. There is no faster way to humility in your life than to stop for a moment and start to thank people. Thankfulness is a God-given engine for humility. It really is. If someone says to you you're struggling with pride, it's probably because you have not authentically thanked people very much at all. It's nearly impossible to be authentically grateful and proud at the same time. And I love that we just had this Thanksgiving and it was great. Do you know that it's good for you to be a person who encourages? Because it's true. I'm not saying leave here and make up flattery about people. Don't like get a note card and think to yourself like, oh, this person's the worst, right? You are awesome, right? I'm not saying being not genuine. It's true. You are the recipient of the kindness and the goodwill and the giving of other people in a million ways. And if it's not happening right now, it did happen. I know that because your diaper was changed at one point in your life, right? I want us to grow in encouragement. I really do. This is a total aside. It feels ranty. This week, I'm like reading this, and I just think to myself, you know who came out alive of me to get again? It was Barnabas. So there you go. The last couple things about Paul. One, I want you to note that as gifted as Paul was, as gifted as Paul was, he was a genius. He made it into Harvard, basically. He studied Judaism, and he got, like, the best rabbi. Gamaliel was the man. This was like he won the intellectual contest. He was gifted. He was bold. He was entrepreneurial. And you know what he does in both cases? In Damascus, he goes to be with the disciples. You know what he does, wants to do when he goes to Jerusalem? He tries to join the disciples. Paul knew that his connection and his submission and his care from the brothers and sisters in the church was vital. And if, if a guy is gifted as Paul needs the church, you do too. You really do. Just a side note. 
No Lone Ranger ministry in the body of Christ. There cannot be. I think we should learn that from Paul. He tries to go there. Let's move on. Paul is an enemy made of friends. I'm just going to hit these very, very quickly because starting in chapter 10, it's going to become broad and massive. There's a dominant theme when we come back after Advent, and that is basically this. The reality that the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, crosses cultural barriers like nothing else. You know that for a lot of the world, one of the critiques of Christianity is that it's a very Western religion. Oh, you just don't understand the complexities of the world and the East and so many other avenues of spirituality and Jesus is just one door of many to God. You know that Western Christianity, North America accounts for 16% of the Christians on this globe. Less than a fifth of the Christians are culturally North American Westerners. It's not because we're so enlightened that we've come to Jesus Christ. Christianity is more widespread across the globe and more culturally diverse. You will find more types of food, more colors of skin, more kinds of singing, more different kinds of dress in Christianity than in any other religion on the globe. It is a distinctly and growing African religion. There is an explosion of Christianity across Asia, hundreds of millions of Christians. In South America, this is not a, it's not a tight little geographic, demographically designed thing. God did not send Jesus into the world to save a particular kind of person. He saved the whole man in all of the world. That's what the gospel is. And we find that the gospel is overcoming ethnicity. That's the hint. Verse 31, we're already starting to see, right? Everything starts in the epicenter of Jerusalem. And now all the names that you discount in your brain because you don't know what they are, You just think Lydda and Joppa and Cilicia and like Caesarea. These are all, might as well just be not, they might as well just be like letters, A, B, C, D, numbers. To the reader in the first century, this is to explain that the gospel is expanding out and overcoming ethnicity. Verse 31, specifically, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. We read this and we just think these are interchangeable Bible words. Someone just pulled a handful out of the felt basket, right? My teacher just threw them up there, whatever. We think it's probably all the same, right? It's just all the same world as they're just old-fashioned medieval Bible places. Actually, older than medieval, right? Like, these are very distinctly different places. This is not... These are not Galilee and Samaria and Judea. This is not like all of the same status of people. This is not... King's new driver is making great strides at Augusta and Pinehurst and Pebble Beach, right? Like, oh, a lot of difference between those golf courses, right? Same kind of strata of people. It's not even like, and the gospel is taking root in Tampa and Jacksonville and Orlando, right? This is more like, to a first century reader reading this, they would have said to themselves like, what? The gospel is making progress and having peace and taking root in Hollywood, and rural Mississippi, and the Bronx. That's the kind of impact this writing from Luke would have had on a reader in the first century. Galilee is that place where Nazareth was from. Do you remember what they said in Acts chapter 2 about the people from Nazareth? They're speaking languages, not the hicks from Nazareth, right? No way, those backward podunk people, right? Not from there, 
I know this is kind of mean, but some of my friends in Orlando before we moved here, it was amazing. When I came here and interviewed, the people in Tallahassee, I told them I was going to be coming from Orlando here. They said, oh, how awesome for you. You get out of that rat race, that terrible concrete jungle of nothing but meanness and East Coast. Like, it was just like everyone here, just Orlando was like, and then I went back to Orlando and I said, yeah, I took a job in Tallahassee. And everyone was like, oh, I mean, it's kind of rural. I mean, they're like, I, I mean, I would never live, I, the panhandle, like, I don't know. People talked about Tallahassee like it was just this most backward like, I basically just said, like, did they issue you a gun? Like, that kind of thing. So, this is the kind of thing, right? This is the gospel overcoming ethnic diversity. Overcoming, not, it's being diverse. It's overcoming obstacles. Things that normally make people stumble. And then the last one. Peter, walking in the spirit of Jesus, is overcoming the fall itself. This episode in 32 through 35 is very, very similar very, very similar to Jesus' healing of a paralytic in Mark chapter 2. I think that Luke is very intentionally putting Peter over the top of Jesus' life to show that this is the ongoing ministry of the Savior. Very, very similar wording. And then more description in 36 through 43 of this girl named Tabitha. I would go with Tabitha too. The other name is not helpful. Dorcas, right? Also, in my church growing up, we had a Dorcas committee. We had like a Dorcas group. And if you don't think my brother and I had a lot of fun with the bulletin in those days, there would be, there would be announcements like to come join Dorcas. And uh, I would sign my brother up. <laughs> and and uh, I'd be like, they made this group for you. Anyway, so Tabitha, this story with Tabitha, right? Is she's amazing. She's obviously an amazingly cheerful, heartfelt, loving person. It says that when she dies, these widows would come and they would bring the things. They brought the things that she had. She had sown, sown for them. There's really an interesting point too. I want you to see Mark chapter five, verse forty-one to forty-two. This is the ongoing ministry of the Savior. Peter acts much like Jesus acted. This is Jesus in Mark chapter five, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. I'll just stop there. The wording given to us from Peter in Acts chapter 9, we don't know. No one else was there. It says everyone else is out of the room. It's probably how Luke got his information. Peter comes. He says to this girl, he says to this woman, Tabitha, arise. If he would have spoken Aramaic, he would have said the identical thing as Jesus with one letter different. Talitha, kumi. Talitha means little girl. And then Peter would have spoken by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus Christ, Tabitha Kumi. We are getting a picture painted for us of Peter working in the ongoing ministry of Jesus. This is the gospel overcoming disease and death itself. And of course, the end goal of all of this, of enemies being made friends, of Peter walking in the ministry of Jesus, is that many were hearing and many were believing in the Lord. It's never signs for signs' sakes, miracles for miracles' sakes. It's never boldness for boldness' sake. It's always so that souls might meet Jesus. Let me encourage you, if you've come here today and you have questions and doubts disbelief. If you've come here today and there's sin that's holding you back, Jesus is very much alive and present, and he meets people and makes friends from enemies the same way he did in Acts 9.
Let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the ministry of the apostles, for Paul and Peter specifically. I pray that you'd give us hope that you're making all things new. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think David has... uh...